I'm Kyle Johnson, and this is What Are You Reading?, a podcast devoted to books and the perspectives of their readers. Today's episode features a recent bestseller that tells the saga of the professional and personal relationship of two game designers. Everyone I've heard talk about this book has considered it one of the best books they've read this year, as it's a well-wrought story with relatable characters that features themes such as identity, disability, failure and redemption, and collaboration. I left this conversation wanting to start the book immediately, and I hope you do too. Thanks so much for listening. My name's Laura, I'm from Leicester in the United Kingdom, and I'm an English teacher. And what is the book that we're going to talk about today? just finished reading Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. I've heard a lot about this book on social media. What makes it the type of book that a lot of people are talking about? I think it appeals to quite a few different audiences. Um, It's got some sort of 80s and 90s nostalgia to it. So it would appeal to any millennial who liked Super Mario Brothers or Mario Kart growing up. But it's also very much on the cusp of being a young adult adult novel. It's got some darker themes that might appeal to those sorts of audiences. And it's a coming of age sort of success story, as well as being quite an unconventional love story, really, because it's it's about love, but it's not about romantic love. Hmm. I mean, you, you mentioned kind of those premises, so uh, kind of a love story, kind of coming into success story. But can you talk a little bit more about the plot, I mean, what, what the book is about, who the characters are, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's about two characters, Sam and Sadie. And after meeting in a hospital as teenagers, they bond over their shared love of video games um, until their friendship ends with betrayal. Then years later, Sam is studying at Harvard and Sadie is at MIT, so they're in the same city. So they've both grown into bright and young, talented people And when they meet again, enough time has passed for them to move past old grievances. They team up to design a video game they can both be proud of. They really want this thing to be both beautiful to look at. They want it to have original music and to tell a meaningful story. So they work hard to create a game called Ichigo, which becomes a blockbuster success in the gaming industry. It kind of spans 30 years of their relationship. So it's got this sort of sweeping epic feel to it. What appealed to me about it is that it's about their creative process and the dramatic highs and lows of artistic collaboration, as well as being kind of an exploration of how massive early success in a person's life or career can affect them, well, in some unexpected but not always positive ways. Mm, The title itself and also the cover image, at least in the, uh, the American release of the book, are very evocative. Can you talk about what the title is is referenced to? This is another thing that drew me in. It comes from a quote from Shakespeare's Macbeth. In Act 5, when Macbeth learns that his wife has died by suicide and uh, the castle is surrounded by Macduff's forces, his final soliloquy is about the meaninglessness of time. It suddenly dawns on him that every action a person takes and how they choose to spend their life is just pointless since every tomorrow just leads to the same end. So it's one of the most tragic parts of 
Shakespeare's most tragic play. But what I like about it, actually, it was it's quite surprising, is my favourite character in the book kind of turns the quote on its head. He loves Shakespeare, but he sees this and uses it in a positive way. He asks, what is a game? It is tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. It's the possibility of infinite rebirth, infinite redemption. The idea that if you keep playing, you could win. I like Macbeth the play and obviously I've I've grown up playing games and things like that. But I really like the fact that the title is a sort of suggestion of tragedy, but actually he puts a positive spin on it and really uses it as a as a metaphor for gaming as well. Mm, interesting. Did you have to study Macbeth in school? I didn't study it in school, no, but I have taught it a number of years. Um, so I've, there are parts of the play that are extremely familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Would you say that it's helpful for people to have an understanding of some of the, I don't know, Shakespeare plots or themes because they show up show up in different ways in other narratives? Um, yes and no. I've always sort of advocated for reading the classics and things like that. Not that I think if somebody doesn't want to read the classics, they shouldn't. But I do personally enjoy finding parallels to classics and things that I've read from my degree and things like that in modern books. And I think that if you don't necessarily know those things are callbacks, then you, you're you actually missing a layer somehow. Not missing out, but it's a shame. Yeah, that's how I feel. I'm not actually sure that many people would agree with that. You know, it's it's one of these things that keeps being argued about. You know, if you've seen the recent discourse, it has been cropping up again, whether or not classics are, are worth reading. Shakespeare is very heavily drawn on. And I don't want to be controversial with this, but my answer is I always personally I enjoy coming across callbacks to classics and Shakespeare plays but I wouldn't say it's essential for people to understand the source material necessarily it just adds a a nicer another layer of enjoyment Mm -hmm. you know there's a moment in I guess kind of the opening of this book it there's a long paragraph And it's kind of getting into the thought process of one of the main characters. And when I read this, I I thought, I can see how this would resonate with people in the Gen Z generation. Uh, Let me read some of the paragraph and then I'll I'll talk a, a little bit more about it. So the paragraph is, and yet he knew himself and he knew he was the type of person that never called anyone unless he was absolutely certain the advance would be welcomed. His brain was treacherously negative. He would invent that she had been cold toward him, that she hadn't even had a class that day, that she had simply wanted to get away from Sam. His brain would insist that if she'd wanted to see him, she would have given him a way to contact her. He would conclude that, to Sadie, Sam represented a painful period of her life, and so, of course, she did not want to see him again. Or, maybe, as he'd often suspected, He'd meant nothing to her. So it goes on and on like that for quite a few more sentences. But um, just the kind of uh, second guessing of oneself and also the being prone toward kind of uh, an anxiety around what you think is going on and what could happen and that kind of thing. I don't know. I, I think that that speaks to this current generation. Is that type of characterization, am I getting it right? And would you agree with that? 
I would agree with that. I think not just this current generation, but I that sort of thing resonates with me too. Um, I'm, a, I'm a classic overthinker, and I think one of the most comforting things you can be told by a person is, I haven't even thought about you once. Don't worry about it. I'll, I'll never forget this time when I had been stressing about something. It was a, it was a week off, like a vacation week from school. And I had been stressing about what this boss figure had been thinking about me and things like that. And when I came back and told her, she said, oh, I didn't think about you once. Don't. And that was just like a weight lifted off my shoulders. You know, I think that this sort of tendency to overthink things is something that can be experienced by people from any generation. And it really is something that the writer does well to essentially appeal to every generation that would read this book. Hmm. Yeah. Are there any passages that stuck out to you that maybe you could share? Yeah, I tend to really gravitate towards stories about people who come together to work hard in a group and collaborate and achieve something great. And this book really does that well. And This quote sums it up nicely. This is from Sam's perspective. It says, he loved the intimacy of being in a tight group of people who had come together miraculously for a brief period in time for the purpose of making art. I love that. There are other quotes that really struck a chord as well. As somebody who's dabbled with writing and things like that, there are things like, at one point, the female character is really stalling on releasing the game and it's pretty much ready according to the two guys that she's working with they're impatient to get it out to the public and she says this isn't right that's not right it's not perfect and somebody says to her if you're always aiming for perfection you won't make anything at all and I think anybody who's ever sat down to create anything has that almost innate streak of pride in what they're doing that means that they want to clutch it tightly until it is as perfect as they think it can be before releasing it. But inevitably, some people trip over that and end up not releasing anything at all. Can you talk a little bit about the the writing style of this novel in particular? It seems like it's a bit, not flowery, but just it places a lot of em- emphasis on descriptive narrative. I think she, in places, she tries for poetic. There is a definite sort of sentimental, nostalgic thing all the way through. She flits back and forth between past and present. Uh, She uses flashback quite a lot, which is always quite interesting because she starts the book when the characters are children and it goes quite quickly to flashing forward to when they're adults because of because they've got history together and obviously she didn't flesh out the years that they were friends you know that there's history that you've missed and so the fact that she calls back to those with scenes that the characters are remembering is quite a nice touch there's another thing that in one of the final chapters I think it might be the last chapter she switches to second person which is rare in a novel I found these days One review that I read of the book also mentioned, and I'm reading here, I suspect early on that the author was creating an artificial world in this story that mimicked Sadie and Sam's respective realities. It was, in essence, art imitating gaming life, 
each of the various games that Sam, Marks, and Sadie birthed into their fictional world has in turn evolved from their own life or gaming experiences. So are they putting their own stories or lives into the game that they're building? Yes, I think so, because Sadie's first game that she makes is called Emily Blaster, and she Mm -hmm. uses the poetry of Emily Dickinson, which she is a fan of, and it's a sort of shooter game that you, you shoot the quotes to build poems. So to play that game, something that I thought was a bit interesting, you'd only ever buy that game if you were a, a real fan of Emily Dickinson. So that was very much a passion of pro, a, a project of passion. She also made something about the Holocaust, which I'm pretty sure, I, I can't be 100% sure, but she has Jewish ancestors, I think. So... Mm. In terms of the main game that they make together, it's called Ishigo, and she very much is the leader of that game. She ends up designing what it looks like. One of the things I love about this book is that the main portion of where they're talking about the game design, you really can picture the game that they're making. And the way that she's done that is that she sort of framed the design of this game around this particular famous piece of art called uh, The Great Wave at Kanagawa. Mm-hmm. I think it's like Hokusai. Um, it's a very famous image. Anybody who Googled it would would recognize it. Once you know that, you can picture everything that's being described. It, it really goes into detail about how the character moves and grows. And the character itself... I found was sort of to rep was representative of the male main character Sam, who after his car crash as a child was left with a permanent disability, and they made the deliberate choice to make the character Ishigo disabled in some way. Hmm. Is there anything else that you would like to discuss or mention about tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow? What I like is the fact that. It's really layered in the sense that obviously the book is a story about storytelling and the fact that it's also layered in the sense that it's about collaboration and storytelling. The fact is that with video games, the story you're being told is a collaboration in itself because the story cannot progress without you playing the game. You are integral to the experience. I had all of this cycling in my brain as I was reading this story. I was just thinking the whole time my brain was on fire thinking, wow, this is so clever. The characters are very relatable, very likable. Um, It's interesting the way they progress. Not everybody gets exactly what they want in the novel, which I think is very realistic. Uh, It's not a completely happy ending, which is also realistic. And it, touches on such a wide range of topics. Not everything I'm about to mention is perfectly explored because there's only so many pages in a book, but it touches on topics like depression, suicide, working through trauma, coping with disability, bereavement and grief. Um, Sadie is obviously a woman working in STEM and it briefly touches on the topic of cultural appropriation and whether artists should use imagery from other cultures in their art. It's got quite a few meaty things that it touches upon. And so I think that because of that, it really does generate discourse. 
It's one of those books that I will definitely read again, and I'm not necessarily a rereader per se. But there's a lot you can say about the book, stemming from "Wow, I really enjoyed this book. What a nice story!" to listen to all of these different topics that individually you could pick out and and really look at within the book. Today's guest was Laura, or at Laura's Pages on social media, who's reading Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. If you'd like to purchase a copy of this book and support local bookstores and this podcast, please find a bookshop.org link in the show notes. The music heard now and at the start of the episode is from the album Wallflower by percussionist Julian Loida. If you like what you heard, please consider following and leaving the show a good rating and review, as this helps us reach interested listeners. If you have a title or genre you'd like represented on the show, please find my email address in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, and as always, happy reading!